Uh, this morning's scripture is from Acts 17, uh, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked with them as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, and saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Then being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was Denisius, the Ergopite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are, Acts chapter 17. We're going to finish it up this morning. If you're new, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we're in a study, obviously, in the book of Acts. And so we're taking a little bit uh, longer chunks here. And so to catch you up just really briefly, uh, last week, uh, we, Sam actually took the first uh, half of Acts chapter 17. You'll remember uh, Paul was in uh, Berea and Thessalonica, 
And uh, now we find him uh, in Athens. And uh, if you recall last week, he was actually ran out of, like Paul typically is. He was ran out of those cities, Thessalonica. Um, and, and he finds himself going south here to Athens. Now, it's interesting because Paul, at least nothing has ever told us or, or steered us to believe that Paul intentionally or had a plan to go to Athens, right? It was, it was more like he was kind of forced or positioned south to get to uh, the city of Athens. And so what we see, again, highlighting Luke, the writer of Acts, highlights that just going, Paul's not led by his map and his plan. Paul is absolutely led by where the Spirit wants him to go and is willing to take him anywhere. And so the Spirit desires that Paul go to Athens. And that's where uh, Al just read a, a remarkable scene right here in the book of Acts. You have this great apostle, right? Maybe arguably one of the greatest apostles that ever lived, the greatest missionary possibly that ever lived. This great evangelist Paul traveled all over the world now we see this scene of him stepping into the great city of Athens. And I'm going to get a little historical on Athens here in a little bit, but, but just imagine this, right? In Athens, if you know nothing else about it, probably you know that it was just a, a place of deep thought. It was the home of the great philosophers and thinkers like Plato and Socrates. And now you have this great apostle come into or walk into this historical city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remarkable scene that we're, we're going to unpack. And so as Paul walks into Athens, what is the first thing? Verse 16, if you have your Bible, keep it open. If you have notes, I would highly encourage you to keep them out because I'm going to talk uh, a lot about uh, different things quickly. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, here's what I want you to see. His spirit was provoked in him. So the Holy Spirit within him as he comes into this great city of Athens, what happens immediately to Paul? The spirit provokes something in him. Right? Paul wasn't just there as a tourist. Paul wasn't just like, listen, I was forced down here. And this is an amazing city, a lot of things to look at. Right? There was something in, in, in Paul that made him notice. And what was it that he noticed? He saw, this is the end of verse 16. He saw that the city was what? Full of idols. And the idea of the word provoked. So if you have your Bible, underline provoked. The spirit provoked him. It's the same word. Like if you look or read in your Old Testament um, where the, the, the Lord was provoked against Israel because of their disobedience or because of, uh, of their idolatry, right? It's the same idea of kind of this holy, righteous, burning zeal that something is not right. So here, here's what I want you to understand about Paul. Paul was a great theologian. Paul um, understood theology, understood the heart of Christ. He was, but, but he was also, he also felt very deeply. So we don't just need Paul's theology, hear me. We also want to look and say, what was Paul's heart? Paul's heart for the Athenians, right? The people of Athens is this, that he was provoked, kind of this zeal, this anger, that there were so many idols all around him, surrounded him. And so it's that um, provoking, if you will, that leads us into the scene that we just read at the end of Acts 17. It's this provoking that Paul walks into Athens and goes, oh, Lord, you need to do something here. The gospel must reach into this idolatrous city and these idolatrous people. But he also noticed something else. I think when Paul walked into Athens and he saw all these idols, he realized very quickly he was not in Jerusalem anymore. All of these, we're talking that, that one commentator said that these were idols smothered in idols. Like that's what Athens would look like when Paul walked in. And so if you remember, and if you have any scripture verse memorized out of this series, it's probably going to be Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? What does that say? 
It's, it's the Lord going, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the what? The ends of the earth. Like that is the common thread that Luke is spinning throughout all of Acts, including Acts 17 here. But what we have seen, it's been amazing, through our study in Acts, we have seen geographically, literally, it go from an upper room in Jerusalem, right? Where they're waiting and the power of the Holy Spirit comes and it falls and then it goes throughout Jerusalem, out to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But that, if we're, if we're, if we're not careful, we will simply take that as a geographical stretch, which is absolutely true, right? It's going to the ends of the earth. But notice what else it's doing. It's going from Jerusalem, right? The religious, okay? Paul's in the synagogues and now he stands where? In Athens, among the great philosophers among the great thinkers. So that same thread of Acts 1-8, right, going to the ends of the earth, is not just geographic, it's not just people groups, but it's also philosophically. It's also going, no, this gospel is going to permeate every fiber and every facet and every thinking. And here Paul stands in this great city declaring the gospel. Now, like I said, I'm going I'm I'm to get a little bit more on Athens here, and some of you are going to gloss over until I get to some other places, but just bear with me, right? Um, in Paul's day, when Paul's standing there, Athens uh, has already passed kind of its uh, golden age, okay? That was probably 4th, 5th century BC. Now in the 1st century, like most places, has been conquered and put under control of Rome, okay? So the thoughts of, of Athens as this massive, powerful political hub and political center for the Greeks is no longer. Is no longer when Paul's standing there. However, it is still beautiful, it is still influential, and it is still an intellectual hub and city. Think maybe in modern terms um, of the ideas or thoughts that come when you think of Oxford, okay? Like, now, most of you probably don't think of, of Oxford as this, like, political and cultural hub, but you think of it as a place of deep study and philosophy and thought where, where, where thinkers are, are known. Uh, Athens at this time, another commentator said, is kind of a living museum of what was. And Paul actually identified this, right, in talking about these idols and what was just said. Now, some of the things you're familiar with it, it, in, uh, in Athens would be that, right? And so it's obviously old and, and, and very old. Uh, this is not where Paul is giving his speech. Go to the next picture. Um, this would be where Paul is giving his speech, and you can kind of see it's up here. And so the, the Ergapis is actually Mars Hill. Okay, that's another word for it. I'll call it Mar Mars Hill because that's way easier to say, right? And so that's where Paul's called to. And, uh, and he gives this speech and this, this talk that we're going through uh, this morning. Um, it is not a sermon, by the way. Paul did not deliver a sermon in the marketplace. Paul did not de uh, deliver a sermon at Mars Hill. It takes a very different shape in the marketplace as actually a talk. And what we see in Acts 17 is not the full talk. It's actually just an outline of what Paul said. And so we're going to highlight some of those things. But verse 18, uh, we kind of see what they thought about his, you know, I think Sam last week called it a TED Talk from, from Paul. Uh, we'll, we'll see what these thinkers thought about his TED Talk. It says, some of the Epicureans and the Stoic, this is verse 18, philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So as Paul's in the synagogue, as Paul's going throughout the city in Athens, he doesn't start here at Mars Hill. He's actually called the Mars Hill. Um, he starts in the synagogue where he typically does, and he's going throughout the city. But these, these two groups, they hear it, and they go, what is this babbler 
What's he talking about? Not necessarily a compliment, right? And so the word babbler actually is, is this idea of a chicken going or a bird pecking the ground for seeds. That's what it means by babbler. And so what these thinkers and these philosophers are saying is like this Paul guy, the message, it seems that he's going from one thing to the next to the next. And there's no coherent line of thought in what he's saying. Right. As a speaker, I I think, you know, Paul would be like, oh, like right at the end of this message, you're like, what did that babbler just say? Not necessarily seeing that as a high compliment. But they had no frame of reference to put the things that Paul was saying. And actually, they were unimpressed. So why, therefore, did they invite Paul to Mars Hill? Why did they invite further discussion? You see, this place of Mars Hill, it it wasn't just because they wanted a formal presentation of these ideas. You see, this group of people, they were trying to centralize and weigh the ideas that were were being shared throughout Athens. And Paul is drawing attention. They will actually rule on whether or not they will allow it to continue in Athens, right? As we know, in every passage that we have taught where the word of God or the gospel goes out, it's met with what? It's met with persecution. It's met with opposition. It's met with, with, with reception, right, as well. And the same thing is true here in Athens. So you have this group who is collected to say, we're going to let this message go forth or not. That's what's at stake. The intellectuals are deciding, right? And something they prized in Athens as well was free speech, by the way. But they, being the elite, being the most intellectual, are going to decide whether or not Paul and what he is preaching is going to be able to be shared in Athens. Sound a little familiar? It should, okay? And so again, what is at stake is this. Can Paul continue to preach the gospel in Athens? We'll see. You see, every first century reader when they read this passage by Luke in Acts, would have picked up this kind of similarity. That what Paul is kind of on trial here for is very similar to another trial that was held in Athens. Probably outside of Jesus, the second most famous trial. And that's the trial of Socrates. Again, not going to bore you with the trial of Socrates, but in the end, they were charging Socrates with preaching foreign gods to the youths. What did Al just read from Acts 17? What was their indictment against Paul? What was their question about what he's doing? You're preaching these foreign gods. Sound similar? It is. Luke is purposefully bringing these two together because here's how the trial of Socrates went down. Socrates was forced for all intents and purposes to drink hemlock and take his own life. You know that if you've studied any philosophy in your life, right? And so that had been a stain in Athens. That had been one of those trials that they had gotten wrong, that the conclusion that they came to about Socrates was absolutely false. And Luke is highlighting here for readers going, listen, this same one that they're putting on trial, Paul, with this same message, you're going to get this one wrong, just like you got Socrates wrong. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to actually the the, the message that Paul is bringing, the thing you are searching for. And so this similarity is very important for us to understand because Luke is highlighting it. Athenians, don't miss it. Park's church, don't miss it. Don't miss the message of Paul. And so there are a lot of directions. Listen to me. We could take a sermon in Acts 17, 16 through 34. There are a lot. We could probably spend eight weeks in this, okay? And I have 30 minutes to do it, all right? And so we could talk about Paul's uh, evangelistic method to the marketplace. Valid sermon. 
We could talk about uh, Paul's uh, courage and his strength and power in the Holy Spirit. Valid. But what I want to do is I want to key in on something a little bit different here. Because I think Luke gives us the two groups of people that confront Paul purposefully. It's not incidental information that the Spirit would inspire Luke to actually list the two groups of people who are the main parties here at Mars Hill questioning Paul. Did you pick up who they are? It's in verse 18 at the beginning. The Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the two parties here. And actually these two parties inform what Paul says and how he brings about the gospel, right? Not the gospel message itself, but how he communicates the gospel message to them. And so these were the main thinkers. These were the main philosophers of the day. They, they were the groups of men who were making decisions in this town. And the question that they were wrestling with, the, the, the one that they wrestle with is no different than the one we wrestle with. How do you find the good life? Right? And I'm going to put the question, what is the good life? Now I want you to pause and think about that. I want you to answer that. Answer that now before I get any further in the sermon. You go, oh, actually, now I know. What's the good life? What does that life look like? What is the highest aim or ideal in our life that we should aim toward? And what should we be doing in our life to achieve that end? What is the thing in your life and my life that we are striving for? Right? This is the core philosophical question these Greeks wrestled with. And these two groups that Paul is confronting have two very different approaches to answering that question. You see, these are not political groups in Paul's day, but possibly in our day, we might put them into the category of progressive and conservative. Again, this has nothing to do with politics. This has everything to do with ideals and philosophies. And so I want us to look really quickly, again, some of you are going to gloss over, at who the Epicureans were. Because some bells are going to start going off for you. You're going to begin to pick up things that Paul was confronting in the marketplace, the things that he was looking at, the things that they would have been asking of him, that he responds back so eloquently with the gospel and that is the exact same thing we are facing in culture around us and in the church today. So who were the Epicureans? Let's look at this. And this is pulled from a commentary. Don't think that I wrote this. All right. The Epicureans, they believe that the body and even the soul were comprised of fine matter that dissolves after death. They were materialists. They denied divine providence. They considered a person wise who neither feared nor believed in divine judgment or eternal reward. The best way to imitate the gods was to enjoy pleasure. You see, if the gods existed to the Epicurean, they were so distant and so removed from humanity that it doesn't matter really how you live as humans. So they rejected the expectations of most Greek myths and way of living. They answered the question that we just put up there, right? What is the good life with pleasure? So in your notes, what you should write is Epicureans. How did they get the good life? Pleasure. Living life to the fullest, full throttle. They valued things like friendship, which is good, right? Communal living and tried everything in their power to mitigate pain and suffering. Now hear me. When I say pleasure, I think what, what we, we do in our minds is we absolutely just throw it all the way to this, this idea of free-for-all. 
Now, that occurred in, in some instances, but it wasn't always at the far end of the spectrum pleasures. This can be more subtle even in our, our day and age. And, and there, I want to illustrate a few quotes maybe that uh, illustrate this idea of Epicureanism. How about the Dalai Lama? The very purpose of our life is to seek what? Happiness, right? Pleasure. The good life? How, what we long to achieve, what is ultimate for us, is happiness. Or, or, or this one, because some of you are like, all oh, these words, right? You, you'll actually get this one, right? Tom Haverford, Parks and Rec. It's a show. Okay. Thanks, Mike, for this one. Uh, treat yourself. Whatever, whatever pleases you, do it, right? Or another one, YOLO, right? You only live once. You only have this life, so live it to the fullest as much as you can, okay? So that's one side, all right? And, and typically that uh, uh, pleasure works itself out in self-expression. However I want to express myself, however I want to go after that, it's up to me. That's, that's, that's the Epicurean. That's what Paul's facing. Then you have the other side of the spectrum. You have the Stoic, all right? And the Stoic, once again, turn to that commentary. They were pantheists. They thought a divine principle was immersed in all of nature, including humans. This spark of divinity, the Logos, was the cohesive rational principle that bound the entire cosmic order together. They confused God with the world's soul and thought the world was determined by fate. For them, a wise person recognized his connection with everything else in the universe, right? Be, be, being one. Cultivating an attitude of self-sufficient contentment. That's important. Self-sufficient contentment, regardless of circumstances. A Stoic lived with a stiff upper lip, responding calmly to everything. To pursue his highest good, he lived by reason. What's the good life? Control. Willpower, right? Self. Stoics saw history as an unending cycle of order followed by chaos, followed by order. They would applaud Paul's emphasis on God's nearness, right? You heard that. But would reject the notion that history was moving toward a culminating point. And if you don't know what that culminating point is, that's the end of my sermon, which we'll get to. Those were the two groups. The Stoics were absolutely on the opposite end of the spectrum. They were the larger groups of these two, and for Athens at this time, they were the more influential group. The Stoics answered the good life question by rejecting the idea of happiness and pleasure and saw it as a very naive approach to life. That ultimately, pleasure in the pursuit of happiness would lead to disappointment, was futile because there was brokenness and there was hurt and pain in this world that was out of your control. So the greatest weakness for a Stoic would be anger, Disappointment, emotions, because you, because you haven't taken the world around you seriously enough to prepare for what inevitably is going to happen. You say, Kyle, why are you giving us these two in such detail? Because this is not, these are not just ancient thoughts or philosophies on life. These two things are very much alive and well in the waters that we swim. And let me tell you, some of those waters lap up over into the church. There is a growing movement towards Stoicism, particularly in America, right? Tracking it all the way back to the late 2013, okay? There is this trend of modern Stoicism in our country, particularly with men, to become modern Stoics. In fact, I had a meeting this week with someone who said that they researched Stoicism. They looked at it as a potential way of discovering what is the good life, 
trying to answer that question. Why this swing? Why this uptick in modern stoicism? Well, I think one of the reasons is because of what we're surrounded by in all of the pleasure-seeking. Right? Someone who would go, I've tried every pleasure. I've tried every self-expression. I've tried every, uh, X, Y, Z. I've done it all, right? Solomon, think of him. Going, that's not the way. This must be the way. Swinging all the way over to the other side. Stiff upper lip. No emotion. Stoic. Some quotes here. And I think with, if, if we're not careful, in the church, like I put those two, uh, progressive, conservative, the more risky one in the church, if I'm being honest, is stoicism. Okay? They're both a, a downfall. They can both be a pitfall. But stoicism would be the one that creeps into the church and goes, oh, don't you see that this is a Christian ally? Don't you see this is an ally of the gospel? No. So you, you'll hear things from, and, and they have shades of truth, right? Um, n- next one from uh, Jordan B. Peterson. We'll give that for the 1045. He says, to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. Or how about, again, from him, strengthen the individual, start with yourself, take care of yourself, define who you are, refine your personality, choose your destination. Jordan B. Peterson, modern guy, current guy, a lot of people listen to him, and a lot of people like, and a lot of what he says, I'm like, you know what, I kind of agree with it. Or how about this one, and Rachel Hollis, she, she wrote a wildly popular book, right? I mean, a few years back, maybe many of you have read it, listen to what it says in it. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Your dream is worth fighting for. While you are not in control of what happens to you, you are in control of the fight. I cannot control what happened to me in the past or what I must endure in the present. But I, for dang sure, which I had to replace something, for sure, can get to choose how I respond to both. I choose to fight for a better life. I think you're here because you have a warrior spirit as well and you want to stand back up and go again. That's stoicism. That's this idea of if you will just work harder, discipline more, understand the brokenness, understand the folly, and just just discipline your way through it through willpower and self-power and self-will. These comments pop up in these thoughts all the time in Christian what struggle, quasi-Christian literature, Christian songs, and just overall thinking. I show you these two to understand them, to be on guard, because these are not the truth. These are not the answer to what the good life is. That is what Paul is refuting from the Stoics and the Epicureans. That is what the Word of God this morning is refuting in my heart and in your heart this morning. It is contending that we will not find a life worth living. We will not find what we are to be living toward in pleasure or fighting in the face of suffering for self-improvement. You see, while on opposite ends of the spectrum, they have a shared idea. Epicureans, Stoics, and the shared idea is this, that neither position had any hope or thought for an eternity. No hope or thought for an eternity. And what is the crux of Paul's message here in Acts 17? Did you get it? The resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and the hope that it brings. You see, so Paul begins to unpack 
and fit something that will never fit into their worldviews and talk to them about what they believe, but with the truth of the gospel. And notice the first thing out of Paul's mouth in verse 23. He says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription. He goes, I saw all of your idols. I saw idols upon idols upon idols. And here's the one that caught my eye. You had one that said, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. And that is where Paul laser focuses in. The center of Paul's message of how the resurrection and hope of an eternity affects the ultimate question, what is the good life, is not found in yourself. Put back up the question, what is the good life? I want that question before us. I want that question before us as I talk through this. The solution to that and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate pursuit in our lives. And hear me, Christians are just as much eaten up by pleasure-seeking, self-power, keep at it, just keep fighting. What is the problem with that? The problem with that is that there is no mention of the resurrection. There is no mention in the hope of the life to come. It can only see how we make the most out of this life. Its goal is a good life now, what's here, what's now, with no concept of what will be. And Paul goes, listen, I want to lift your eyes. I want to put into your thinking, I want to put into your philosophy something that I know won't fit. It's the resurrection and it's a hope of an eternity. And so here's just three things really quickly that I think Paul highlights in his talk to the Stoics and Epicureans, but also to us. But also to us. And the first thing is this, we're all accumulating things for a good life. We're all accumulating things for a good life. In Athens, it was a place packed with ideas and idols. Ideas and idols. Paul says that over and over and over again. He goes, here's what you give yourself to. He says, you spend your time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was their search. That was how they went after the good life, was we just kept hearing something new. And surely we'll find that thing that we're looking for, that ultimate reason, that ultimate purpose. Surely if we just hear and listen more ideas. And Paul goes, that's not it. We, listen to me, we are no different. We're accumulators. And I'm not just mean material things, even though we do accumulate a lot of material things, right? But it's the accumulation of more leisure, of more business success, right? Of more ministry, of better reputations or ideas or accumulation of relationships, affiliations. Surely if we accumulate all of those things, we'll find what the good life is. We'll ultimately find our purpose. And just like the Athenians, just like the Stoics and the Epicureans, all of the accumulation was for the purpose of searching for a good life. Second thing, all of that accumulation and that pursuit is looking for what Paul points to as ultimately an unknown God. He goes, oh, you're accumulating, you're talking, you're thinking, your lofty ways. What you are actually looking for is this unknown God. You see, the motive for us to keep on accumulating, no matter what we manage to get our hands on, is that we know that there's something better out there. 
for all the accumulation of knowledge and, and success and education and reputations and affiliations, we still know in our heart of hearts that there is this unknown thing or God. And Paul puts it like this. We are groping our way in blindness or darkness. But here is the good news that Paul brings. You accumulate searching. What you're searching for is an unknown God. But here is the truth. Paul's God and our God is a God of revelation. And Paul breaks out this God, the one true God, not an unknown God, but a God who has made himself known in our searching. Listen, we do not worship a God of our imagination. We worship a God of revelation. That is what Paul says time and time again. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That is the God, Paul goes, has made himself known to you. You're searching, you're looking, and Paul goes, listen, he's closer than you think. He's right in front of you. You've actually had a place for him, but you've put under there unknown God. Let me tell you, that unknown God is known, and his name is Jesus Christ. And here is the assurance of that, the resurrection, that there is a hope for something that is to come, and you can stake your life on that. You're looking for the good life. You're looking for what your ultimate purpose is. You look for what your ultimate call in life is. It is this. It is surrender and living to that God, not an unknown God, but a known God. And that in that, that is where you'll find pleasure forevermore. That is where you will find joy. That is where you'll find yourself in this world. Yes, stoic, that is broken, that is jacked up, that is so, so fleeting and, and, and frail and, and, and fractured. Yes, those things are so right. But the only assurance we have in that is Christ Jesus. How do we know? The resurrection, Paul says. That he did not stay dead, that he was rose, that he was risen from the dead. That is our assurance, Christian. And Paul's laying this out there for them. He's not a God crafted by human hands. We don't need to make a, a golden statue to commemorate him. He is a God who took on human likeness and came and dwelt among us and then gives us his Holy Spirit. Listen to me. The most important thing happening in your life is not your pursuits or your accumulations. Hear me. The most important thing in your life is that God is pursuing you. That God is accumulating His people for His glory for all of eternity. And that God, you know what the good life is? The good life is joining that God in that movement. That's the good life. You see, the good life is not something we accumulate and finally discover. The good life is what we soon realize is what God is doing by the revelation of Himself. Revealing himself as the unknown we have been longing for and searching for and groping for. God is something revealed to us, given to us, something our only response is to receive. And Paul says, repent of our accumulations. And he says, this God is closer than any of you realize. You see, so often what is peddled to us in Christian teaching is advice on how to improve your life. And inevitably, it has its focus on you, your pursuits, your destiny, your purpose, and how God can help you fulfill and to get to the place of the good life. Ultimately, our goal is not that. Our goal is to surrender to the one who gives life and join him in him, his accumulation 
of all nations. You see, what effect, if any, does the resurrection have on your life today and for eternity? You see, oftentimes, as N.T. Wright says, we struggle with understanding the resurrection. It's like this fuzzy, fuzzy thing that we hope works out at the end. But the resurrection absolutely impacts today because it gives us a hope for tomorrow. It gives us the hope we need when we struggle. It gives us the hope we need when we find these pleasures and have these pleasures. You see, the Stoics lived into the brokenness. Grit your teeth, pull back your shoulders, control yourself, but miss the hope of the gospel and the power of the resurrection. The Epicureans wanted pleasure, but missed the greatest pleasure in the world is found in the one who is resurrected, the one who gives pleasures forevermore. You see, resurrection power is what allows us to receive the difficulty, the suffering, the disappointments, and find in the midst of them hope. Find in the midst of them that this world is not my home, that the resurrection is a promise not just for Jesus, but to those who trust in him. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, Paul says in Romans, so will you. That he also repeats in Colossians 3 the same thing. That that very reality must be something that breaks into our lives as disciples right here and now, but for the hope of forever. You see, this is what you've been looking for. Christian, this is what you've been searching for, accumulating for. Non-Christian, this is what you're searching for. This is the hope you're longing for. Not more accumulation, not better or more discipline. You're looking for Christ. You're looking for the hope of Him. That is the place where the good life is found. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is powerful and it shapes us and shakes us. God, I ask for forgiveness in my own life and in my own heart and the tendencies to veer off to the left and to the right. To not truly anchor myself in the hope of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. That in the end, all of these things will be made right. All of the brokenness that we feel, all of the pain that we're all well acquainted with. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate our eyes. That just as even in this passage, Paul was mocked for this, but also some received this. And so I pray this morning that there would be the majority of us who receive this message of the gospel with glad hearts, with open hearts and open minds and eyes, seeing that you are the one who gives life. The good life is an impossible pursuit of futility and frustration apart from Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would live lives surrendered to him in glad and joyful obedience. Lord, I thank you for a community, a church here that is on that pursuit, that is hungry and thirsty for more of Jesus. Lord, that's what we desire. So I pray that you would give us that desire each and every day. God, as we go from here, as we go into the marketplace, as we go into our, our, our contextualized Athens, that you would show us and speak through us. 
that we'd be able to spot in our own people, in our coworkers, in our, uh, our, our, our other friends and places and neighbors, people who don't know you, that their search for an unknown God. And that we might, with wisdom and clear articulation of your son, speak to that and that you might save. Father, I love you and I thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.